Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you've been following along in the news like me, you've seen that you've been following along the Russia and Ukraine war and you've been seeing the number of deaths that have been adding up. Now, last time I quoted this, I got it wrong at one time, but you guys can correct me if I get it wrong now. I think that they've said in the newspaper that in the month, by the month of March, at the end of March, the Russians have lost between seven to 15,000 soldiers. Is that, is that right? What's that? About right? Okay. That's, I know we're into April, but that's by the end of March. And I got thinking, you know, that is a lot of people. That's a lot of people who have died. And it's hard to put your mind around that number. And then my mind said, well, thankfully that's on the other side of the world. It's not in our part of the world. And then I began thinking, no, actually death is pretty real here too. In the United States, about 6,900 people die a day. 198,000 people every month. Now it's not from war, it's from things like car accidents, cancer, drowning, and of course, my favorite, falling out of bed. I don't mean to make light of um, the war that is going on at all between Russia and Ukraine. That's a really serious thing. It's, It's a terrible thing. But war does not change the ultimate death toll, does it? Every single one of us, barring the return of Christ, that is, will ultimately die. And when we die we'll find ourselves facing an eternity in a place where the atmosphere cannot be changed, irrevocably and permanently there. And our eternity is largely based on what's happened here in this life and what we've done in this life. Folks, that can be a scary thing. That's why instinctively and intuitively every single one of us fears death. But that's why the resurrection is so important. The resurrection of Jesus changes us. We don't have to fear death anymore. Look what the scripture says about this. It's in the top of your outlines. Hebrews chapter two, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came, he died, and he rose from the grave to free us from our fear of death. Death doesn't have to be the moment of judgment for us, but because of Jesus, death can be the moment of forgiveness for us. Death doesn't have to be the worst moment of our life, but because of the resurrection of Jesus, Death can be the best moment of our life. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, folks, it is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is the hinge upon which every single thing in our Christian faith turns. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, folks, there is no reason for us to gather on this morning or on any other morning. If it's not true, we have no hope for tomorrow We have no hope for the face of death, and this life is as good as things will ever get. If the resurrection is not true, the church is false. If the resurrection is not true, the Bible that we believe in and trust in is a lie. But the resurrection, folks, is true. And the resurrection changes everything about our life and this world. This morning, I'd like to look look at two things about the resurrection. The first thing I'd like to do is look at the evidence for the resurrection. Because, let's admit, sometimes you hear it and you're like, okay, did that really happen? Like, did Jesus literally rise from the dead? How can I know that is true? That took place 2,000 years ago. So we're going to look at evidence for the resurrection. But the other thing I want to look at is how does the resurrection change our lives, like today? If the resurrection is true, 
What does it change about us and our future? When it comes to uh, the resurrection, the premier chapter about the resurrection in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read the first 11 verses, which gives evidence for the resurrection, and then we're going to jump to verses 20 through 28, which gives us the hope of the resurrection and how that changes our future. So take out your copy of God's Word, if you can. I don't care if you use a paper Bible or a phone Bible, whatever you got, and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Follow along in your copy with your eyes as I read verses 1 through 11 and then 20 through 28. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And then jumping to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is except, that he is except who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And that ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. Let's start in the beginning here at verse one of chapter 15. The question it answers is this, is how do we know Jesus' resurrection is historical fact, not fiction. How do we know it's true? And I'm going to give you six pieces of evidence beginning in these verses and one piece of evidence coming beyond these verses that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed fact and true. The first one comes out of the first two verses. It's the evidence of the existence of the church. Paul says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This uh, first piece of evidence is not explicitly stated by Paul in these verses. It's actually more implicitly stated in these verses, and it's the fact of the lives of the Corinthian believers themselves. In fact, it's the truth also of other Christians, they heard the good news, 
that Jesus lived, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave, and they believed in Jesus, and they trusted in Jesus, and they found their very lives changed by Jesus. Not just were they forgiven of their sins, but they actually experienced becoming a different person. And Paul says, if you look at yourselves, look at your own lives, and how trusting in Jesus Christ has changed you, that is in itself evidence that the resurrection is true. Paul says, look at your lives. You, you began, you Corinthians, began in spiritual darkness. You began in um, spiritual deadness. You were slaves to sin. But when you believed in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, you were changed by Jesus. Earlier in this letter to 1 Corinthians, Paul says this about the lives of the Corinthian believers. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, which by the way means one who attacks another person's reputation with their words, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. You read that. I mean, that is a pretty honorary group of people. They were looking pretty messed up in their lives. But Paul says, that is what you used to be like. And then you heard the message of what Jesus did for you. You trusted in Jesus. You believed in Jesus. And then you were supernaturally changed by Jesus into completely different persons. No, not perfect people, of course, but changed people. The orientation of their life was no longer heading into deadness, sinness, and wickedness. That's not the defining character quality of who they are. Now they are heading to Jesus. Now they love Jesus, and they worship Jesus, and they've been changed by him. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What Paul is saying is that when we trust in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, literally, we are made into new people just like when in Genesis, when God spoke the earth into being, he speaks new life into us. Now, Paul's point is this. Where else in the world do you find these kind of, this kind of life change for people? I mean, you can try Jenny Craig. It's not going to do it. I mean, you can try herbal tea. It won't change your life. You can even try essential oils. But I guarantee you, you won't find people that are stuck in deadness and sin, all of a sudden completely reorientated and forgiven by Jenny Craig, essential oils, or anything else other than Jesus Christ. For the last 2,000 years, people have mocked the resurrection of Jesus, said it's not true. It didn't really take place. They've mocked the church. <laughs> the church is a joke, they've said. But the one thing that people have never been able to explain is how hearing the message of what Jesus Christ has done for people, and then they trusted it, and they're supernaturally and radically changed by it. No one has ever been able to explain that away. And Paul says, that, my friends, is evidence that the resurrection is true. Look at your own life and how trust in Jesus changed it. The second piece of evidence is this. It's the evidence of the Bible itself. 
verses three and four, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's a short verse, but the, short two verses, but there's a lot packed in here. So let me take a moment to unpack this for you. He says, I delivered to you what Paul just spoke about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is not something that he designed, not something that he made up, but it was news and information that he received. And then all he did with that is then deliver it to the Corinthians. He didn't make it up. Incidentally, he says this is so important. He says this is of first importance. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is, he says, the most important thing we need to know. And he describes this, obviously. Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins. He was buried and then rose from the grave on the third day. And uh, it's interesting because um, when Paul writes this letter, it's a very early letter. Scholars tell us that the letter of 1 Corinthians was written only 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So it's a very accurate portrayal of what the early church believed. But this little phrase, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, those who are Greek scholars look at this and they say, look, he's obviously quoting something. He's quoting what was delivered to him, what was given to him. And they trace this back and they say, apparently, this is really what's called an early creed. And they date it back to within five years of the resurrection itself. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the cornerstone of the faith is exactly what the early church believed. And it dates back to established doctrine within five years of the resurrection. Now, sometimes you hear people say, the church has drifted. Church has lost its way. We don't even know what the early church really believed, and we probably believe something different. If you've heard people say that, it's simply not true. We know what the early church believed right here within five years of the resurrection itself. The bedrock foundation of the faith was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And my friends, that is the exact same thing we believe today. We haven't changed. We've stayed anchored to the one thing that doesn't change because it's the one message that changes lives today just like it did back then. Paul also says here, by the way, this message is not something that all of a sudden God burst onto the scene in the first century. This message has been spoken about in the scriptures ahead of time. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that Jesus Christ has always been God's plan. It was always God's plan that he would die, be buried, and rise for our sin, to forgive our sin. You say, well, really, where is that found in the Old Testament? Let me show you a little bit here. The disciples are on the road to Emmaus after Jesus Christ rose that morning and Christ is with them. And it says this, and he said to them, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glories? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't that been a great Bible study to have Jesus open the Old Testament and show you every place he is found in the Old Testament? How about this? The unbelieving Jews, uh, they were talking to Jesus and Jesus says this, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus says, Jonah, who is sort of a type, a prefiguring of what Jesus would do, that Jonah was dead 
and buried for three days and then sort of came back to life. Jesus will be literally dead and buried and come back to life. Now, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is talking, oh, excuse me. Oh, yeah, here we go. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is talking to the crowds, and he's talking about uh, David and talking about Psalm 16. And he says, David, when he was writing Psalm 16, he was prophetically speaking about Jesus. Let me tell you, he says, how you could know this is speaking about Jesus. Because David, when he wrote this psalm, talked about death and um, burial of God's anointed one. And it didn't quite work out the way you would expect. Let me show you. Brothers, may I say to you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Then he quotes Psalm 16. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter's like, well, Hades, that's the realm of the dead. David died. Here's his tomb. It's right there. His body did decay. So obviously, David was not talking about himself in that psalm. He's talking about the one who wasn't left in Hades, Jesus, whose body did not decay. Jesus. He is prophetically speaking about Jesus in that psalm. Psalm 22 talks about Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before it happened. It says, For dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's exactly what happened when Jesus was crucified. Yet this is prophetically written about hundreds of years before Jesus came. Isaiah 52 and 53. Sometime we'll have to just do an entire series on those two chapters. Those chapters are filled with all kinds of detailed prophecy of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, what I love in that, those chapters is they explain the purpose of why Jesus came and died. Isaiah 53. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. You see, the Old Testament talked about hundreds of years before, numerous times all over the place, that Jesus would come, live, die, be buried, and rise in our place for our sin. Over and over, either directly or indirectly, either literally or in figures of speech, this is what the Old Testament talked about. Let's flip to the next page here. The third piece of evidence that we know the resurrection is true is what Paul would give us is the eyewitnesses. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Folks, throughout history, in a court of law, when they're trying to determine the truth of something, one of the most powerful pieces of evidence is the evidence of honest and truthful eyewitness testimony that something has happened. And if you can get to the point in a court of law that you have three eyewitness testimonies that are saying the same thing, a lawyer's conviction rate rises to 99%. Here we have far more than three eyewitness testimonies of honest and reliable men who met with, talked with the resurrected Jesus Christ. The first one he gives us is Cephas, who's also called Peter. 
Um, apparently Jesus, when he resurrected, appeared to Peter. We don't know when he appeared to Peter. We don't know uh, exactly where he appeared to Peter. It was sometime between the morning of the resurrection when he appeared to Mary and the evening of the resurrection where Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We're not told exactly why uh, Peter, or Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared specially to Peter. I have a theory as to why he did that. Remember, Peter denied even knowing Jesus how many times? Three times. While Peter denied Jesus, Jesus never denied Peter. I think that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter not because he deserved to see Jesus the most, but I think he needed to see Jesus the most. Imagine what that would have been like for Peter after having denied him three times to meet, talk with, and touch Jesus Christ having come back from the dead. What an amazing change. The next set of eyewitnesses he gives us are the 12. Jesus appeared, we know, to the disciples on the evening of his resurrection, but Thomas wasn't with them. He appeared a week later to the disciples, but this time Thomas was with them. Remember, Thomas was the ultimate skeptic. Oh, I would never believe that. Even if everybody else says that Jesus rose and that you talked to him, I won't believe it. I'd have to literally put my hands into his wounds to believe it. And Jesus is like, have at it. And his response is like, oh my, you actually are here. Now, those are two times that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he rose from the dead. But if you go through the rest of scriptures, you find recorded in the scriptures actually a total of five times that he appeared to his disciples. And not just appeared to them like Casper the Friendly Ghost, but he talked with them. They touched Jesus. Jesus ate food. Ghosts don't eat food. Then Jesus one time even made them breakfast. And they ate the breakfast that Jesus made. I mean, you can only do that when it's a literal person risen from the dead in front of you. Now think through this. If the disciples were lying and they made up the resurrection of Jesus, it would be really easy to disprove. The first thing the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities would have done was would have grabbed the body of Jesus and they would have drug him through the streets and said, doesn't look risen to me. This boy looks pretty dead. But they didn't do that because they couldn't do that because on resurrection morning, the tomb was empty. Jesus' body was gone even though it had been guarded by Roman soldiers. The body was not taken away from the outside. It burst to life from the inside. A couple other thoughts. People will die for their convictions, but people will not die for their concoctions. People will die for what they believe to be true, but they will not die for things they know to be false. If the apostles were making up the story of the resurrected Jesus, why would they all go to brutal, vicious, terrible deaths, swearing that they had indeed met with, talked with, touched, and even ate with the resurrected Jesus Christ? People do not die for a lie they made up. They only die for things they are convinced is true. Now, how did they die? Peter was crucified upside down because he was unwilling to recant from the fact that he had met, touched with, and talked the resurrected Jesus. Andrew, Philip, Simon, Bartholomew, and James were crucified in the traditional position, swearing that they had met Jesus. Matthew was killed by the sword. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. The only one who didn't die for his faith was the apostle John. But by the way, he was boiled in oil. They just weren't able to effectively kill him, so they eventually exiled him. Boiled in oil, 
swearing that yes, Jesus is indeed alive. I've met with him. Now, what happens is Paul sort of switches his strategy from talking about the quality of the eyewitnesses, first of all, Peter, and then the 12. And then he now talks about the quantity of the eyewitnesses that are out there. 500 at one time met with Jesus, talked with Jesus, and, and touched Jesus. And he says, oh, by the way, most of these guys are still alive. Remember the, that this was only written 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, this letter was. So Paul's like, hey, go out on Facebook Messenger. Just message these guys. Ask them yourselves. Go to Snapchat. Snap them a couple times and ask them some questions. They'll talk to you. They'll tell you from their firsthand eyewitnesses account of meeting Jesus. Trust me, he says, it's true. Now, he changes tactic again from going from the quality of eyewitnesses to the quantity of eyewitnesses. Now he begins talking about skeptical eyewitnesses. He talks about James. Now, who is this James? The Bible scholars are pretty much unanimously agreed that this James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He grows up in the same house as Jesus, you know, except Jesus has Mary as the mother and God as the father. James has got Mary as the mother and Joseph as the father. And it's tough growing up when your older brother is the perfect child. You know, when Jesus leaves home and he goes out and he starts doing the healings, he starts doing all these miracles, you'd think James would believe in him, but James is like, no way. I don't believe him. He's not God. I think he's a flake. I think he's a nut. I think he's a crazy person. James completely rejects him. That's my crazy brother. What would take and change James to the point that he starts praying to his brother? that he literally starts worshiping his brother. Paul says, you know what it was? The resurrected Jesus appeared to his own half-brother, James, and radically changed his mind about who he was, that he is indeed God. That to me sounds like pretty solid evidence. I mean, if you can get your own half-brother to believe in you as God, because you rose from the dead? I mean, that's pretty good. Now, Paul switches to even more hardened evidence or more, more difficult eyewitness evidence, the people who are hardened against Christ. That's the evidence of Paul himself. I call him a unique eyewitness. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul was not one of the original apostles. In fact, Paul had spent most of his time hating on Jesus Paul went out of his way to persecute Christians. He assisted in the arrest of Christians. He helped in the murder of Christians. I mean, he's holding the jackets when Stephen, the very first martyr, is stoned. He's right there. Go get him, guys. Paul is completely opposed to Jesus. What would take Paul and bring him from an enemy of Christ to the, one of the most outspoken proponents of Christ? The Bible tells us it all happened in Acts chapter nine. Paul was on the Damascus road on his way with more paperwork to arrest more Christians and the resurrected Jesus literally appeared to him in blinding light, knocking him on his backside. And Jesus is like, uh, Saul, I'm the one you're persecuting. And he's like, oops. I think I've been heading in the wrong direction with life. I think I need to reconsider who Jesus is. I just met him. And then Paul goes in the complete opposite direction, giving his life to proclaim Jesus. The only thing that could have changed him is meeting the resurrected Jesus himself. 
there's some interesting uh, Greek going on here. Paul says, I am one that was untimely born. The Greek literally means that I am a miscarriage or I am an abortion. What he is saying is that when it came to me before Jesus, I was so dead, there was absolutely no way I could conceivably even respond to him or go pursue him because I was so hardened against Christ. If it wasn't for God supernaturally putting life into my dead soul, there would have been no way I would have ever turned to Jesus and trusted in Jesus. One last piece of evidence here. The evidence of the common message. For the last 2,000 years, let's read the text. Whether it was I or whether it was they, he says, so we preach and so you believed. No matter where you go, the message of the gospel is always about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And for the last 2,000 years, that has been what the church has stuck to, that has been what the church has stayed with, and that has been what the church has continued to preach. Now, if the resurrection were fictional and it was created by men, over the last 2,000 years, don't you think churches would have moved on to something else, onto the latest, the greatest thing? But that's not what's happened. The resurrection has stayed the foundational thing for the church, for all of history. Not just that, but the resurrection message has been the one thing that continues to change lives for all of history. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because years ago, I thought the same thing. When I had been in a sermon just like this, I would have said, Pastor, thanks for showing me the evidence for the resurrection from the Bible. It's like it's always from the Bible. If the resurrection is such a big thing and it was changing people's lives, why is it only found in the Bible? And folks, the resurrection is not just found in the Bible. The resurrection is such a big thing, it's found throughout secular history. You may not have known that. Um, look at the next point, the evidence of secular history. Let me give you a quote that simply encapsulates this from John Warwick Montgomery. He says, 22 of the 39 documents that we have today which record history from the first century speak about the resurrection of Jesus. 11 of the 22 documents are non-Christian sources. Do you realize that? It is recorded in secular history. Tacitus, who is the Roman historian, speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. He's not a Christian. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian working for Rome, he writes about the resurrection of Jesus very clearly being true in that day. He's not a Christian. So the evidence for the resurrection is not just logical evidence, which Paul has given us. It's not just biblical evidence that Paul has given us. It is sex evidence as well. And we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did indeed take place. If you came in this morning and you were doubting the resurrection's historical truth, I hope you come away with that solidified in your heart. But I don't want to stop there. Now that we know the resurrection is true, what does it mean for us? That's our second point. How does Jesus' resurrection change my future? The point is this. Jesus' resurrection guarantees my resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, for by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The good news is that Jesus Christ's resurrection was only the first resurrection. It is not the last resurrection. Paul says it's only the first fruits. Now you wonder, what's that? You have to go back into the Old Testament you go look at the book of Leviticus and as the Israelites were harvesting their crops or getting ready to bring in the crops, they would go out and they'd get a first fruits 
sample before they cut anything else down and they would bring it into the tabernacle and there they would offer it to God. Leviticus 23 verse 10 talks about it if you want to look it up. And when they had done that first fruits offering and had been accepted by God, then they could bring in the rest of the harvest. And Paul says, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. It's only the beginning of the resurrections. And that your resurrection will also come because of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection literally requires our resurrection for all those who believe and trust in him. Now let me make a little clarifying point here. This is a resurrection, not a revivification. Have you ever heard that term before, revivification? You go to Lazarus when he died and Jesus raised him back to life, but Lazarus died again. He was just revivified. Jairus' daughter, Jesus raised her to life, but she died again. She was just revivified. But Jesus rose to new life never to die again. Resurrection life is a whole new quality of life. It's a resurrection body that cannot get sick. It cannot get weak. It cannot die. Jesus Christ today is at the right hand of God the Father in his resurrection body. And he is just as strong, just as energetic, just as powerful today as the day he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Because resurrection bodies do not get weak. They do not die. And one day, you and I, as followers of Christ, will get a body just like Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus' body, is the, his resurrection body, is the prototype for our resurrection body. The Bible says this, that when Christians die, right now, their bodies go in the ground. Their spirits go home to be with Jesus. Philippians chapter one, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which Paul says is better by far. But one day, Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will speak the word. And our dead bodies, our bodies that have rotted in the ground, our bodies that have been burned in crematoriums will instantly and totally be reassembled and transformed into a resurrection body just like Jesus. And our spirits will be reunited with our bodies. And we will live forever in those bodies with Christ and under Christ just like him. So that's why the resurrection is an important thing for us. Another point, eventually everyone will be resurrected, either for salvation or for damnation. Many people don't realize this. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order, Christ was the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when Christ returns, Christians will have will be given resurrected bodies. We see this also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and what? The dead in Christ will rise first. As Christians, we get our resurrection bodies first. Now, some of you will say, is this true? I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus went back to heaven. Don't you think he's forgotten about us? No, he hasn't. What the Bible says is the reason Jesus hasn't returned is not because he, he has forgotten about us. It's because he's being patient with us, giving people more of an opportunity to repent, and to trust in him, and to be saved. Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ didn't return 100 years ago? Because if he did, you would have never had a chance to hear the good news, to repent, and to trust in the good news, and to be born again. Thank you, Jesus, for being long-suffering. 
Thank you, Jesus, for being patient with a very sin-sick world and sin-sick people. Thank you for being patient to wait for us to repent and to trust. Now, when will Christ return? I'll tell you, I don't know. And anybody who thinks they do know is completely wrong. The scriptures simply say this, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So how does it work? Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection that happened in the middle of history. Then there's a period of time, at least 2,000 years, we're already there. Someday Christ will return for Christians and he will resurrect our dead bodies and give us resurrection bodies. Then the scriptures tell us that we will reign with Christ and under Christ for a 1,000 years on earth, which is oftentimes called the millennium. Then after that, there's a time at the end of history called the end. And at that time, everyone else is raised from the dead. And they get their resurrection bodies, which will not be able to be destroyed. But that is known as a resurrection of judgment. When they are judged by Jesus Christ and ultimately consigned to the lake of fire by Jesus Christ. What is a just and fair judgment. So the Bible is clear. There are actually two resurrections, not just one general resurrection. There's the resurrection of Christians, which we just read about is when Christ returns. And then there's the resurrection of those who have not trusted in Christ at the end of history. You can see these two resurrections talked about in various parts of the Bible. John 5, 29. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that everyone will one day get resurrection bodies. That'll either be a good and wonderful thing because we've trusted in Jesus Christ or a really tough thing for those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who find themselves just, ju judged justly by Jesus and then consigned to the lake of fire. But there's another component of the resurrection of Christ, a final component we should read. Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrection of creation itself. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that, it is, that he is exempt who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjections under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, Jesus will be under God the Father, is what he says. So, what we have here, as you look at this, there's this time called the end. And at the end, it says, he will destroy every rule, power, and authority. You may not know this, but in the original languages, in the Hebrew, rule, power, and authorities describes different ranks and orders and powers of the demonic world. What this is saying is at the end, Jesus will destroy Satan and all of his fallen demons and consign them to the lake of fire. And Jesus will even destroy death itself. This is amazing. And then what Jesus will do, will take this world, which has been influenced by sin, because remember, death came into the world when sin came into the world. This world was not designed with death in it. It was changed when sin came in it. Jesus will remake the creation itself free of sin and death. That's what we look forward to. It says this in Revelation. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Look at this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. If you came in here this morning and you doubted the truth of the resurrection, I hope as we looked at the biblical and the logical and the historical evidence for the resurrection that you found yourself with your faith built up, that you would place your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and his resurrection for you alone. If you came in here this morning and you wondered, well, I wonder what difference the resurrection actually makes for me today. I hope that you will walk out knowing that the resurrection makes all the difference. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you trust in it, is what makes you a new person on the inside. Remember we talked about that in the beginning of the message? The resurrection of Jesus Christ will give you a resurrected body when Jesus Christ returns, so you're made to a new person on the outside to live forever with Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ will result in the resurrection of creation itself, where heaven and earth will be combined as one. All mourning, all crying, all pain will decease. Death will itself be gone, and we will live with Christ and under Christ on a resurrected earth in a resurrected universe in resurrected bodies that is why the resurrection makes all the difference let's pray oh jesus thank you so much for rising from the dead you are just the first fruits of the resurrection we look forward to not just um, how you have changed us in our hearts and our lives but we look forward to how you will change our bodies and how you will resurrect the universe and how you will wipe away death, sin, Satan, and all darkness. Thank you for the power and the good news of your resurrection. And all God's people said, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.